This episode of The Startup Life is tucked in nice and tight by Philip Stein and the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet. Startup Nation, getting quality sleep is super important, especially for those of us as entrepreneurs. I know for me, if I don't get enough quality sleep, not only do I not perform well while working in my business or exercising, but also it really affects my mental health and that doubt starts to creep in. And that's the last thing we want as entrepreneurs. Also, with everything going on, good quality sleep is important to repair the body and support a good immune system. And that is why Startup Nation, I wear the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet. The Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet uses natural frequency technology to reinforce our biomagnetic field to improve deep sleep, length of sleep, and overall sleep quality. This helps produce a healthier heart, regulate weight control, and helps strengthen the immune system, which helps destroy bacteria and viruses. Right now, when you go to philipstein.com, use code SLEEPEZ, and you will get 10% off the entire store. That's promo code SLEEP, capital E, capital Z. So if you are ready to be more productive in leading your business, go with the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet, proven to be natural and safe to give you a better, deeper sleep. It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, so I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, over the past 15 years or so, social media has become heavily integrated in our day-to-day lives. Honestly, whether you're on it or not, from the way we shop, engage others, even being part of the political process. But as this medium continues to expand and evolve, how do we expand and evolve with it? Well, today's guest may have a few answers to help us out with that. He is an award-winning professor of management, IT, marketing, and data science at MIT. In addition to being an entrepreneur and venture capitalist, he is also one of the world's leading experts on social media. Why he's on the show today, because he is also the author of The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. He is Sanan Aral. Sanan, how are you good, sir? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dominic. I appreciate it. No worries. Definitely looking forward to talking to you today. We can definitely use your help, man. Are you ready to pour some knowledge in the Startup Nation? Because we can use it. Yeah, absolutely. This is a perfect audience. (laughs) I hear that. I hear that. So before we kind of dive into what you do in the book, just kind of share your origin story a little bit, if you don't mind, good sir. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a professor, obviously, at MIT. Uh, I like to say I'm a scientist, entrepreneur, and investor in that order. I hear that. So as I've been uh, working through my scientific career, I saw several opportunities to commercialize my science uh, in a couple of companies, which... Uh, I built and sold prior to becoming a venture capitalist and starting a growth stage investment uh, company, which now invests in uh, these types of companies. And really, the engine of all of this activity comes from the ideas generated by the science. So we work on machine learning and artificial intelligence as it applies to marketing technology and enterprise performance. We practice that in the marketplace by building companies and investing in them. And we do the scientific research that's published in peer reviewed journals that drives the innovation that fuels uh, the marketplace ideas. I hear that. Thank you uh, for sharing that all of that for sure. Kind of uh, walk me through, you know, a, a day in your classroom a little bit, if you don't mind. So now like, what, what's that experience like for you? Well, you know, the, uh, before the coronavirus pandemic, <laughs> uh, 
it's a completely different situation, of right? Course, I mean, where you know, as as all of us are dealing with this tremendous disruption in our lives, you know, the concept of the classroom has evolved so much. So before COVID, uh, I teach a class at MIT called Digital Marketing and Social Media Analytics, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most heavily subscribed classes at the MIT Business School, the Sloan School of Management. And I love to have uh, a lot of engagement and interactivity. And so I tend to let in a few more people than uh, would be allowed by the fire marshal. Don't let that spread too widely. Uh, and so, so generally, we have a lot of people who show up and, uh, and a lot of people are even kind of like sitting in the rafters and sure. in the, in, on, on the, you know, in the, in the court, in the, uh, uh, sort of pathways between the seats and so on. And right. it becomes a, it becomes a really, uh, engaged conversation. And the reason why is because, you know, I've had many decades now of experience, uh, in the marketplace, right. putting these ideas to the test. And so people want to hear about, you know, this company or that company or how I work with Facebook or WeChat or Instagram or LinkedIn and I work with all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and then we hear their experience in, in business, of, you know, getting their MBAs. They have a lot of work experience. So it really turns into a chat about, you know, the practice of, of digital marketing and where is the rigor and how can we make it work better and how do we maximize ROI and uh, how do we get to re- sustainable recurring revenue and and what it takes to really build an organization that's built on data and, and analytics and rigor. For sure. For sure. Once again, Startup Nation, we're talking to Sanan Aral, the author of The Hype Machine. So if you would, Sanan, just kind of talk about, you know, uh, kind of like the evolution of not necessarily just social media, but like digital marketing as a whole, you know, as opposed to, you know, I mean, like when we're talking about the, you know, the uh mid to late nineties, you know, it, it's a far cry difference from what it is now. Kind of talk about that evolution a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I describe this notion of the four decades of consumer engagement, which mm-hmm. was really kind of sparked in my mind, uh, by conversations with Rob Kane, who's the former CIO of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he describes kind of these four decades in the eighties. It was this concept of a single message. You put a lot of money into a single message. Like think about a Super Bowl ad right. and you would sort of serve that to the entire population for 30 second spot, everybody sees the same message. In the 1990s, we started to think, well, you know, uh, maybe everybody in the marketplace isn't the same. And maybe 18 to 24 year old gamers aren't the same as soccer moms. And Mm -hmm. I can maybe have slightly different messages for slightly different groups. In about the year 2000, with the advent of the internet, we were able to not only individually target message to specific people, but we had a lot of history about their demographics, their browsing behaviors, their purchasing history, and that allowed us to really tailor messages, customize, personalized messages to the individual. And then round about the year 2000, uh, it really became the decade of uh, the socially linked consumer, mm. where now the consumer is really embedded in these digital networks of word of mouth uh, ratings, reviews, user-generated content, Facebook, Instagram, and social, and really their worldview, whether it's reading politics information on the newsfeed of Facebook or whether it's uh, brand names or whether it's uh, reviews of products, specific products they want to think about buying, 
their world, their information ecosystem is really a digital network of peers and the crowd that's informing their perceptions of brands. So the way I like to tell my students at MIT is that if you're still thinking about market segmentation, you're about three decades behind. Wow. And I and I sort of like let that sink in for them and they sort of take a minute to really take a deep breath and think about that and realize how much has happened since the 1990s through the era of kind of internet personalization and now into the what I call the new social age in my book is a completely different world of the way the consumer experiences reality and therefore how we engage with consumers. You know, thank you for sharing that. I'm just always amazed at how, you know, powerful, you know, social media has become digital marketing has become uh, in that regard, because, you know, you even talk about in your book how uh, a tweet can like really affect a a company's, you know, share price. A tweet can really, uh, affect, you know, or a Facebook post can really affect somebody's political uh, prospects and stuff like that. You know, did, did we ever, did anybody ever say, or did you ever see uh, social media becoming so big to have the, that much power? Well, you know, I don't think anybody saw how incredibly transformative uh, it would be. Right. I don't think anybody saw how quickly it would rise, right. which is uh, one of the really dramatic Uh, things that we've experienced in the last decade. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I tell multiple stories in the book about, for instance, um, you know, a a false tweet in 2013, which claimed that Barack Obama had been injured in two explosions in the White House. It was actually Syrian hackers had hacked the AP News Twitter handle. They put out this single false tweet and the stock market dropped by $140 billion in a matter of minutes. And that's one tweet. Right. Uh, Pepsi experienced a very similar uh, thing when uh, Indra Nui, who was their former CEO, said in a New York Times uh, interview um, something along the lines of, well, you know, I voted for Clinton. I congratulate President Trump on his victory. Um, but, you know, we need to heal and, and uh, you know, mend these two camps and come together as a country. And then some people, uh, you know, tweeted or posted on Facebook that she had said that supporters of Donald Trump aren't welcome at Pepsi. And Pepsi's brand reputation took the greatest hit that it had all year, even greater than two I think it was three or four quarters of bad financial results. So the information that spreads on social media can have dramatic consequences for businesses, for reputations, for politicians, for our democracy. And all of that is explained in the book. Absolutely. No, thank you uh, for sharing that. That that always amazes me. You know, it's like, you know, and and it's almost like social media in a lot of regards has revealed kind of something that was always there. And what I mean is, it's like two people can look at the same thing, whether it be, you know, true or, you know, untrue. They can look at the same thing and have two wildly different perspectives on it. You know what I mean? And you kind of talk about yeah. that in your book. Absolutely. So there's there's an entire chapter. T- chapter two of the book is called The End of Reality, right. which is this notion of, you know, how um, this uh, bifurcation or the splitting up of different parts of human society into micro-targetable communities that see completely different sets of information and what that means for what reality really is. We don't experience the same reality anymore. It used to be that we all got our news from the same 
TV stations, but now we all experience these very splintered versions of reality. And in addition, I describe all of the algorithms of the hype machine from friend suggestion algorithms to newsfeed algorithms and how they target smaller and smaller groups of people with different types of messages and different types of information, all the way through to this notion of deep fakes, right? The ability right. to create fraudulent audio and video that looks incredibly real. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, then it can really distort our view of reality entirely. Gotcha. I- I'm so glad you brought that up. I've, deep fakes concern me greatly. You know, I, I promise they do because you, you can just put like somebody's face on some other person's body and like have them like literally, and you said distort audio as well and just have them honestly say almost anything and, and without, you know, uh, any kind of due diligence, if you will, you can have uh, a political figure say something they never even said and so, and like it, people will run with it. That's just, that's so concerning to me. So that brings up another question, like talk about some of the responsibilities, even at a micro level, you've some, you know, people who aren't influenced and stuff like that. Is there a certain level of responsibility on social media in your opinion? Yeah. You know, I think that what happened, uh, social media was born of great promise, right? right. So at the beginning, it was kind of like, gonna. It's going to connect the world. It was going to provide life-saving health information. It was going to uh, enable small and medium-sized businesses to get online and to connect directly to consumers. And it was going to, you know, raise money. It, you know, Facebook raised a quarter of a billion dollars for ALS research in eight weeks. I mean, when you sit there and and think for a minute about that, when Nepal had the greatest earthquake that it had had in a hundred years, right. the U.S. and European Union. Uh, you know, devoted a certain amount of money to um, disaster relief, and Facebook surpassed the U.S. and Europe combined That's crazy. in the disaster relief that it could uh, generate. Uh, Seven hundred and seventy thousand people donated to that with just a few clicks. So it has a tremendous amount of power, um, but at the same time, uh, it holds a lot of uh, uh, potential for peril, for as sure. we've seen for our democracies and. Um, for our economies, and even you know, during the pandemic, for uh, misinformation about coronavirus and so on. And so, in the book, I describe you know a lot of uh, responsibilities on the platforms. Right. They need to design and think about society and societal values as they uh, evolve their platforms over time. A lot of the uh, responsibility lies with policymakers. We need to regulate social media in a way that preserves the independence of the marketplace and competition and free speech, but also limits some of the dramatic harms uh, that can be done by social media. But we as ordinary citizens sometimes forget our responsibility in all of this, which is to use social media responsibly. So for instance, fake news, right? Just (laughs) can't tell you the... It's a big one. And I can't tell you the number of times I see fake news come across my social media with the preamble that says... I don't know if this is true, but it's really interesting <laughs> if it is, right? right. Y'all got to just stop doing that. You know, like that alone, if, if people would just stop before they believed or shared the information and did a simple Google search, right. I think about 80% of the fake news memes can be debunked in a few clicks with a few searches on Google to see, is this true before you believe it or share it? Sure. Uh, and also just kind of thinking about 
thinking we've shown in uh, my colleagues at MIT have shown in research that just thinking critically, being reflective uh, on information before you believe or share it is important. So for instance, looking at the, the source of the information, frequently there are uh, a lot of uh, URLs that are seeming, uh, that are trying to look legitimate, but are clearly not when right. you kind of look at the URL or they're, they're using a lot of all caps or there's misspellings, you know, just dead giveaways for stuff that isn't legitimate. That if we just thought for a minute, uh, it would go a long way to, to stopping the spread of falsity. Absolutely. No, I, I definitely agree with you there. I, I, I say all the time, cross-referencing is your friend. Uh, right. You know, like when you do that Google search and, and if you see multiple outlets kind of report it, uh, then there may be some truth to it or something like that. But no, I, I definitely agree with you and appreciate appreciate uh, your uh, content there for sure. So I want to ask you this, you know, because uh, it, it a lot of times, you know, we have things on social media where you don't really see like, wow, I didn't realize I didn't think that would work. And one of those things when it comes to business is Wendy's. We know how Wendy's likes to get on Twitter from time to time and make fun of people and people absolutely enjoy it. So I want to ask you this, you know, because uh, they're usually like poking fun at the person who's tweeting at them. So I want to ask you this. Why is something like a Wendy's campaign when they're making fun of potential customers such a hit with you know, uh, with uh, with those same customers, what what is something that you teach your classroom stuff like that? Well, it's funny you say that because um, what we live in now is an attention economy, uh, right? Okay. So that was my and, next and, question. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the, and the reason that uh, that Wendy's is successful is because it's engaging, mm. it's funny, or it's something that inspires me to pay attention. Right. You know, oh my God, you know, like if it takes, if, if it kind of uh, makes me laugh if it teaches me something, if it's wholesome, if it you know uh, it encourages me to do things that improve my life, then it's going to get my attention. And that providing value, whether it's through humor or through good advice or through you know tips to improve you know yourself or your marketing or your business or whatever it is that you're providing, if that's valuable, then you will garner people's attention. And when you garner people's attention, uh, then you can really engage them. And I think that, you know, just, I think people, the the, the sort of stuffy days of corporate uh, messaging are over. Today, we... We want a little bit more reality. You know, we want people to be, to be kind of like relaxed in themselves. We want people to be relatable. We want brands to be relatable and funny. And we appreciate that. You know, the other one that comes to my mind is are those Old Spice commercials, which mm, got absolutely. so much, you know, play uh, just because they were hilarious. Right. And they were some, one of the first brands to try to just be funny. Right. Uh, with their commercials. And so uh, that's a good example as well. For sure. And Startup Nation, I want to read a quick quote from the book to kind of re-double uh, down on what Sanan just said. And it's from the part of the book that talks about the attention economy. It says, a quote, attention is valuable because it's a precursor to persuasion, end quote. Because I know a lot of people, Sanan, uh, who are listeners of the show, they want to be influencers. They want to be uh, per, uh, have that persuasion to kind of translate to dollars or ads or whatever the case may be. Kind of talk to that a little bit. Talk about kind of the monetization of that persuasion a little bit. So I was um, I was watching a uh, an Instagram video the other day. I can't remember who it was, uh -huh. but it was it was a you know motivational speaker was speaking to an audience member, a, a, um, a sort of young entrepreneur, and and he said, "Okay, I'll give you a shot. You know, like go ahead and go ahead and sell me." It reminds me of the 
of the uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross movie, right. you know, where, the, where, uh, you know, Al Pacino is saying, you always got to be selling, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so he's like, all right, well, here's your shot. Sell me. Or wh- what was that movie where he goes, sell me this pencil, the Wolf of Wall Street. Gotcha. It's like, sell me this, sell me this pen. Right. So he gave this, this basically this young 20 something entrepreneur, the opportunity. And, uh, and so he, he starts into his pitch and he says, I'm so-and-so, you know, I want to talk to you, you know, I'm from this university and so on. And the guy goes, okay, you got my attention. And then that was it. He didn't have anything to say after that. Right. And the point of the chapter is that first you have to get their attention, but the point of the attention is that that provides an opportunity to then come with what is it that you're trying to do? Right. Like, are you trying to build a business? Are you trying to hire me? Are you trying to sell me something? What's the value proposition of that? And so uh, the attention economy is about getting people's attention and engagement, but then following through with a call to action or some sort of engaging conversation that changes their behavior. And since information is exploding in this economy. We're bombarded by more and more information every single day. Uh, Herbert Simon, the Nobel Prize winning economist, likes to say that information consumes attention. Mm -hmm. And so the more information there is, uh, the more information, the greater the scarcity of attention. So first, you have to struggle to get people's attention. Once you have people's attention, then you can't just be caught flat-footed with nothing to say. you got to have what it is you wanted their attention for on the ready so that you can uh, then engage them in a conversation that moves uh, them forward. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, I want to ask you this and speaking of, you know, uh, attention and stuff like that, because one of the biggest attentions, uh, attention getters on social media is Gary Vee. And you kind of talk about him uh, a little bit in the book, kind of mm-hmm. share that a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, Gary Vee, I, when I first started, um, looking at some of his content, I was like, wow, I mean, this is uh, a little bit kind of, uh, you know, sales pitchy. It's Mm. very kind of travel circus oriented. You know, (laughs) he had, you know, he had a lot of, uh, you know, his, his best selling books are, have these titles like jab, jab, right hook or crush it. And, you know, he's got, you know, cartoons and he's got his picture of his smiling face, you know, next to a, a turd or he's got these weird kind of like things that he likes to do and say, and I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I started to realize once I got deeper and deeper into his content was that, uh, eventually he had me. And what I mean by that is he had the one thing that he was after the entire time, which was my attention. And as I started to kind of get into his content, I realized that he was incredibly deep on the basic workings and strategy of the attention economy, and that that was the entire key to VaynerMedia, because uh, he was able to convince sports stars, you know, um, uh, musicians and people that he represents as a marketing agency right. um, that he knew how to arbitrage between differently priced attention, how to get attention, how to turn that attention into persuasion, and how to operate in the attention economy. And by you know really consuming his content with an open mind, uh, he he kind of 
changed my opinion dramatically. And now I think that he really uh, understands this economy incredibly well. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that for sure. I want to ask you this because, you know, we're talking about monetizing social media and stuff like that. And now you're starting to see uh, a platform like a OnlyFans uh, where you can kind of get that money you know, almost instantaneously. I saw an article just today uh, where there's a young lady who quit her opt- optician job because uh, she's making $10,000 a month uh, on OnlyFans just doing like kinky puppy videos or something like that. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, you know, where do you think you, you see social media? What's that next phase of it all? If, if you're well, yeah, absolutely. I, I actually um, cover this in detail in the book, the whole mm-hmm. influencer economy, how influencers work, the science behind it all. Yeah. You know, I think that um, right now what we're seeing is kind of a wild, wild west of, mm-hmm. uh, of influencers. We're seeing uh, tinkerers, people who are just trying uh, new things out. Uh, willing to fail, willing to take risks, um, and some things catch on really well. We obviously see uh, reports of the ones that succeed, but there are lots who fail trying to do different types of things. And so I think what's going to happen there is there's going to be some analytical rigor put to it. You're going to see agencies that start to measure the effectiveness of different types of influencers. You're going to see specialization So I think that a lot of the influencers that succeed specialize in certain types of content. They build a community around a specific type of content. Uh, And then, uh, you know, a lot of what we see now is that the micro influencers are more a portfolio of micro influencers is more influential for a brand than a single celebrity Mm. because Kim, Kim Kardashian charges a half a million dollars for an Instagram post. And that's that's cost prohibitive. But if you have a portfolio of influencers that have between 1,000 and 15,000 followers each, uh, you can probably get more engagement uh, by working through that portfolio of influencers than you can by spending half a million dollars on an Instagram post by Kim Kardashian. We see, for instance, that um, the engagement rates are inversely proportional to the size of the audience. So the amount of engagement per post is higher for smaller niche influencers than for celebrities. Celebrities have a big audience, uh, but they don't have as much engagement per head as a micro-influencer would. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's major. And Startup Nation, I hope you caught that because I think a lot of times people, you know, because we have a lot of podcasters and I'm in a lot of podcasting groups and it's like, oh, I, I don't, I, ne- I need to get 15,000 followers. I need to get 20,000 followers. I need to get 50,000 followers of the show. Uh, but you kind of just shared uh, a game plan that's kind of counter to that. And so you, I think you just gave a lot of hope to a lot of micro influencers, especially like ones like myself. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, for micro influencers, I would my big recommendation to them would be focus on engagement. Mm. Obviously, building your audience is important. Right. But, you know, respond to every comment. Uh, Start a conversation with each individual audience member. If you give them value, they'll talk about you to their friends and you'll build your audience that way. But if you don't give them value, you're going to lose them. And that's a big waste uh, of, of effort and energy on your part. I also think that um, being selective and creating kind of a niche, narrow uh, subject matter for your content is also probably a good strategy. Mm. Uh, to and, and just be authentic. You know, I think that 
authenticity goes a long way and and we see that authenticity is what drives engagement even if shock and awe is what drives audience for sure for sure thank you for sharing that. i want to ask one last question before we uh kind of uh transition a little bit if i could sanan because uh mm-hmm. you know we talk about the power of social media and, and and building a brand and building a business but we also are seeing uh that it can be a tool for social justice in that regard you know even from a few years ago from the arab spring and stuff like that and now black lives matter and stuff like that kind of share uh some insight there if you would some commentary if you would about using social media to kind of affect change if you will yeah you know uh there have been social movements obviously before social media but social social media is an accelerant and an enabler of social movements like we've never seen and the reason why that's true is uh it enables two things first it enables a signal of um of solidarity so you can signal through you know, a uh, lens over your profile photo that supports Black Lives Matter or tweets or, um, you know, comments and so on, that you are part of the uh, part of the movement. And then it coordinates action. So through this decentralized real-time information system, you can organize uh, marches. You can organize people to get out into Tahrir Square or to, uh, you know, whatever square is in your neighborhood. And so um, those two things in combination have never existed at the scale that we see on social media. And this actually goes back to uh, what in economics and sociology and philosophy has been written about for centuries, really, as the collective action problem. And that's a, a problem where any one individual's behavior is by itself meaningless. And only when you uh, sort of combine all of the actions of a large group of people does it have meaning. So great examples would be climate change. Of course, your individual carbon footprint is not going to make a meaningful difference for climate change uh, in the world. But if a large enough group each does a small set of things, then it makes a meaningful difference. Democracy, another perfect example, voting. No one vote matters, but all of the votes together matters a lot. And right. so this is this is the, the collective action problem because it doesn't seem like there should be an incentive for any one individual to act. But when we all act in concert, it can move mountains. And social media helps us accelerate and enable that kind of social movement uh, or overcome the collective action problem by signaling commitment and coordinating action. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I wanted to ask that because it seems like social media is now these days is kind of like how uh, TV was in the 60s during the civil rights movement. It's like there's there's one thing to say, oh, there's you no know, unrest going on in the South. But when you see images uh, of certain things, you know, then it's almost there's no denying. It. And so with social media, it just seems like it just spreads like wildfire now. So I appreciate you sharing your commentary and insight on that, Sanan, for sure. Well, you know, another another thing about that, sure. that I think is really, really important is that um, one thing that we see in the research on social media enabled social movements is that they rise really fast, but frequently they mm. don't have the time. They don't have the time to develop um, an organization. Same power, a set of demands, right? So they're they're powerful but fragile, mm. and you know, compared to like uh, the movements of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi in India, which happened over many years and developed an organization, had demands. They may not have same power, but 
I actually sat next to DeRay McKesson on a play plane once and I and I had a long conversation with him. And mm-hmm. that dude is incredibly deep, both on the on the sort of uh, blocking and tackling of organizing, but also on this need to just be deep on the policy issues and to have a uh, specific set of well thought out principles and uh, and sort of objectives for action uh, that make a good social movement. And, I, and I'll say this, uh, it goes right back to the notion of attention and persuasion, right? You can get somebody's attention, but then what are you going to persuade them to do? The analogy to social movements is they rise fast, they get the world's attention, then the whole world turns to them and says, what do you want? And then the, mm. the, the response has to be well-reasoned. It has to be a set of demands and organization that has staying power and that has uh, can create real meaningful and lasting change. For sure. For sure. No, that's that's definitely important. I appreciate you uh, pointing that out. All right, Startup Nation. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson, and you're listening to The Startup Life. This fresh coat of the startup life has been sprayed on nice and smooth by Wagner and the Flexil series of paint sprayers. Startup Nation, my wife decided she wanted to rehab her childhood home. The goal was to fix it up and invite a nice family to rent it out. We knew one of the biggest jobs we had to undertake was painting. However, from the walls, the cabinets, and even the siding outside, it was going to be a big task. As entrepreneurs with a company to run, we knew this was going to take up a lot of our time which is why we decided to get a paint sprayer. And after much research, we decided to go with the sprayer from the Flexio series from Wagner. Startup Nation, these sprayers are top-notch because of its flexibility to paint or stain walls, furniture, cabinets, and more. It's 10 times faster than using a paintbrush, which was a big selling point for us. And you can paint or stain right from the can. It's also easy to clean in five minutes and being great for indoor and outdoor projects, a paint sprayer from the Flexio series clearly needs to be part of the arsenal in your garage. So if you're ready to stain your deck or like me, feel your daughter's request of a bubblegum pink room, up your game with a paint sprayer from the Flexio series by Wagner. Take it from me. Your time will thank you. This episode is sponsored by Swanson Health. Startup Nation, Swanson Health has been producing quality vitamins and supplements, foods, healthy home, and self-care products for over 50 years, since 1969, from the heart of America. Swanson Health carries over 20,000 wellness products at a great value. Pick up all of your favorite health products, plus discover new ones for your wellness routine, all while leaving money in your pocket. If you want to try any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use code STARTUP20 for 20% off at swanson.com. We have a link there in the show notes if you listen to the replay. This episode of The Startup Life is powered by Colony Spark. Startup Nation, with our economy in flux, there is a lot of mixed messaging out there. If there was ever a time to take control of the narrative and let your customers know that you're here to serve them, it's now. And that's why you have a friend in Colony Spark. Colony Spark is an omni-channel marketing agency that believes in the power of community to ignite your business. They have helped companies across many industries with lead generation, revenue growth, and more to put them on the path to success. My guy Bill Murphy and his team are very good at what they do. How do I know this? Because not many SEO companies have the stamp of approval of being partnered with Google. Yes, that Google. 
So I want you to go to www.colonyspark.com forward slash startup to schedule a meeting today. In that meeting, you will review your current marketing activity, receive actionable advice on how to pivot and grow, and ask any marketing questions you may have on navigating over the next few months. Look, Startup Nation, I know things may seem uncertain right now, but if you are looking for a business partner that can help light the way, go with Colony Spark, where they firmly believe in business helping business. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. Once again, Startup Nation, the book is The Hype Machine, how social media disrupts our elections, our economy and our health and how we must adapt. And Startup Nation, that book is available today. You can look at the uh, link in the show notes if you're listening to the replay on the podcast. I want to shift gears here a little bit because you're also the founding uh, partner of uh, Manifest Investment Partners. You're the founding partner there. Kind of talk about, uh, you know, your goal and your strategy when it comes to uh, uh, pouring capital into certain companies and businesses and what's the goal there? Yeah, so um, I uh, co-founded this company with my longtime friend and business partner, Paul Falzoni, uh, Mm -hmm. back in 2016. And we had we had um, just finished. Uh, he had just finished selling his last company. I had just finished selling my last company. Right. And we decided we wanted to work together. We had a, a network of people who had supported our startups in the past, uh, and so they decided, and we decided that a good idea would be to help uh, entrepreneurs to uh, realize their visions with a a big fund, a growth stage stage fund, uh, because we had operational experience, at, you know, between us, we have five exits under our belt prior to the venture capital firm. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, you know, we, we built manifest with a, a very simple founding philosophy, which is that we're not just providers of money. We're providers of strategic support and insight mm-hmm. based on our years of experience building and selling companies. And that's what kind of differentiates us in the marketplace from most traditional venture capital firms, which are focused on a portfolio approach. Sometimes you see venture capital firms uh, uh, pursue what is sometimes called a spray and pray strategy, okay. where they they essentially put a, a bunch of money into many, 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 many different companies, and they hope that you know some small fraction of them really hit it big to make up for all of the losses on the ones that fail. That's not our strategy. Our strategy is we look for businesses with seasoned entrepreneurs that have good ideas and traction, product traction in the marketplace. And then we expect all of our companies to succeed. And what I mean by that is we work hand in hand as an extension of the CXO suite to try to really bring uh, the vision of those entrepreneurs to a successful reality in the marketplace. And, uh, and so we work very hard. We don't just give them money and walk away. Uh, you know, we help them as much as we possibly can with our prior experience to make them successful. You know, I, I appreciate that. So thank you for sharing that that answer. I appreciate that because I think a lot of times, you know, uh, entrepreneurs who are seeking funding or from an angel investor, venture capitalist and stuff like that. I think far too often they see the purse strings as the main value. When actuality, it's the experience, it's insight, it's the know-how, it's sometimes it's the Rolodex. It- yeah, that, I, I think that's uh, such an important point. It, it, it really, really is true. If you're an entrepreneur and you're raising money, uh, you should ask the potential investor, 
um, you know, what their involvement is going to be, how, what, what are they going to contribute beyond just the money? Because the, the money that one, uh, investor will give you is identical to the money that another investor will give you conditional on the terms of the agreement. The thing that's different is the smarts and the expertise and the strategic insight and the advice and the Rolodex and the et cetera, that they have to bring to bear on your company. And so those things, in the end, end up being way more valuable than the money itself. That kind of strategic advice is uh, sometimes um, very difficult to replicate. I just think that's really important. And I hope, Star Nation, I really hope uh, you caught that. But in, the, in that same vein, I, I think it's also important for you as the investor to, you know, make sure you're making a sound investment. So I guess I'm curious, you know, when it comes to, you know, you kind of talked this, about this a little bit. I want to go a little bit deeper. Uh, when it comes to like, you know, are you looking for a great pitch deck? Are you looking at the person? Are you looking at the idea? I guess what are some of those indicators that make you decide, you know what, we're going to go in this direction as opposed to this direction? Yeah, you know, uh, quick three things about that, sure. which I mean, I, I have so many thoughts on that, and I and I think that that is something that I kind of think about a lot. Okay. Uh, first of all, the entrepreneurs themselves matter a ton, it, perhaps even more than the product or the idea or anything like that, because in any business, a business and an entrepreneur are going to pivot. They're going to need to adapt to changes in their experience of the marketplace. They're going to need to change their business, etc. We have to believe in the entrepreneur. We have to believe in the uh, th- the entrepreneur has to not only be smart, dedicated, hardworking collaborative with their team, able to build a good team and motivate their team. They need to be humble. They need to understand the concept of learning from others instead of just thinking they know it all. They need to be able to communicate their ideas well. They need to be all of these things at once. So we really spend a lot of time getting to know the entrepreneurs. And I'd say the people involved, the founders involved in the company are such a crucial part of the success of any startup. Secondly, uh, I think that obviously we really look in detail under the hood of the idea and really it takes us a long time to have enough conversations with uh, a new startup to really get their sense of the company, the product, what they're trying to do, how they respond to different types of questions about their you know, business plan, the way that they would approach the market if things changed in this direction or that direction. Right. Uh, and so we, we really get into the nuts and bolts of the business. And as an example, you know, we invest a lot in um, machine learning and artificial intelligence and algorithms and data science and so on. Right. And so, you know, a lot of venture capital firms will outsource the um, due diligence of that to some third party. But when it comes to us, what we do is they say, okay, you know, like, let's set up a meeting and we'll walk you through our tech, you know, just, uh, you know, put us in touch with the, with your, uh, you know, whoever you want us to do the due diligence with. Mm -hmm. And I always say, no, 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 that's me. You can just like open your laptop and show it to me right now. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they're a little, they're kind of taken aback by that. They're like, oh, wait a minute. I thought you were the venture capitalists. And I'm like, well, I was also the chief scientist of all the companies that I've built and sold. So I understand the algorithms. You know, I have a PhD from MIT. I can look at that stuff. The nuts and bolts are absolutely essential. So 
what's going on under the hood of the company is important, uh, but also, you know, the entrepreneurs, their basic uh, character, you know, the the ethics of the people, the their collaborative possibilities, their ability to adapt, uh, their commitment to their ideas, the amount of hard work that they're willing to do, their openness, their humbleness, all of that matters a ton. I'd say, honestly, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe uh, 75% entrepreneur 25 percent idea when i'm thinking about investments i heard that i heard that thank you for sharing that for sure you know and and speaking of you know uh kind of like looking at uh talent entrepreneurial talent and stuff like that i was looking on uh your instagram uh feed just now uh and that's at professor sanan if you're curious about that style make sure we have a link there in the show notes for easy access where you can follow him on instagram uh and you shared a, a picture of kobe bryant and i know before he passed away he was starting to build this nice business portfolio and stuff like that i want to ask you this if you were to take his mindset as he approached the game of basketball and translate it over to uh the world of business how how successful do you think kobe would have been in the business world in your opinion well you know i think that it's no surprise right that uh the people who succeed in athletics at that level Mm -hmm. like a kobe or a michael jordan or a lebron james uh, you know, they are unbelievably dedicated, right? The, right. the Mamba mentality, Absolutely. right? Uh, that, that Kobe always espoused, they are unbelievably dedicated. I remember, uh, you know, growing up, Michael Jordan was my favorite basketball player. I will have a debate to this day <laughs> with anyone, with anyone who questions whether he is and will always be the greatest basketball player of all time. Gotcha. And the, the reason for that is because, I mean, six championships are, you know, tough to, to shake a finger at. LeBron is making a run. Right. Uh, Kobe made a run. You know, but but that guy, even in in his prime, after winning five championships, was the first one in the gym, the last one to leave, the one working hardest in practice, the one taking shot after shot after shot. Kobe was very similar. He obviously learned uh, from Michael. He considered Michael Jordan a uh, a mentor right. uh, in that way. And so, you know, I was I was just I'm always impressed. Uh, by the commitment of big time athletes, the real superstars, how much they work and and that dedication to their craft, the the not three extra reps, but 300, 3000, right. 30,000 extra reps just to get it perfect, just to make it muscle memory. It's a it's an incredibly deep commitment. The 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 picture I posted, however, uh, was really something uh, about the balance that a lot of these uh, athletes show. LeBron James, another perfect example. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy is so dedicated to his family. Uh, right. He is so dedicated to um, causes, to uh, the right uh, ideas being pushed in society, obviously Black Lives Matter and um, inequality and so on. But the, the picture I posted for those of you who uh, want to follow me on Instagram was actually a, a picture of Kobe during a game uh, getting a, a, a backwards high five from his daughter mm-hmm. uh, while he is while he is in a game. Uh, and, and it just shows that even in the middle of this intense uh, you know, professional physical activity that he's that he's going through, he's got his mind balanced between his responsibilities as a father 
and his responsibilities as a professional athlete. He's, he is not so singularly focused that he forgets his holistic self in the world. And I think that's really important. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And, and speaking of finding uh, that balance and, and being dedicated to your craft and stuff like that, and you've had all this amazing success. Uh, tell me about your, your son a little bit. I know you have a new hobby of kind of learning from him these days. Yeah. Uh, kind of talk to me about your son a little bit. Yeah, you know, that is uh, possibly the most humbling uh, experience of my life is to, so my son uh, is, uh, he's seven years old. He is an unbelievable kid. He's, the the thing I'm most proud of him for is how kind and uh, empathetic he is with uh, the people around him, both his friends and his, um, his, uh, you know, the, and the adults around him, he can have a conversation with people of any age and he's very bright. He reads a lot and so on. The other day I went hiking, uh, with him and one of his friends and his friend's father. And we, we were having lunch by a lake and, uh, and you know, the other friend, I'm not going to name names, uh, <laughs> you know, was like, Oh, you know, I just want to be a superstar. You know, I want to, I want to earn a lot of money, you know, and I want to get rich. And my seven-year-old son stopped in the middle of his PB&J and he said, you know, I don't really, I don't really care about money. Money is just a means to an end. Mm -hmm. What matters is being happy and giving back to the world. I was like, is this really coming out of a seven-year-old's mouth? This is unbelievable. Right. (laughs) Right. And so that's what I mean when I say I learn from him every day. He really makes me stop and reflect about what's important in the world. Just looking at him makes me think about what should our legacy as parents be? How should we leave this world for the next generation? And keeping that front and center in your mind is probably a good idea as you kind of accomplish things in the world. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. Uh, I want to ask you this because, like I said, you're a dad and I, and I saw in my prep that you you enjoy cooking, skiing and telling jokes. But, you know, you also uh, I'm sorry, telling jokes about your cooking and skiing. My apologies. I really <laughs> uh, so since you're a dad and you like telling jokes, do you have a good dad joke today? <laughs> well, I have, I have, I have, I have a lot of good dad jokes. Um, oh, lay them so, on his brother. Well, I got, I got, I got one. I saw, I got one, uh, that actually a friend of mine told me about, he, he saw a t-shirt, okay. uh, and it was a, a guy, it was a Venn diagram and, and, you know, these two concentric circles that overlap just in the middle. And right. one of the circles said, uh, you know, uh, jokes and the other circle said, dads and then there was an arrow pointing to the middle and it said this is where the magic happens (laughs) (laughs) that's my best dad joke (laughs) fair enough thank you uh for sharing that once again startup nation we're wrapping up with sanan or the author the hype machine how social media disrupts our elections our economy and our health and how we must adapt once again startup nation that book is available today if you look on the link in the show notes, uh, if you're listening on the replay on the podcast. And if you're on radio, you can get that on any of your favorite uh, bookstores online for sure. So I'm actually going to turn the microphone over to you, Sanan, because given everything that's going on, people are feeling a little discouraged, feeling a little kind of down a little bit. Kind of give us some words of encouragement to take us out for the day, if you would, good sir. Yeah, you know, uh, at any uh, sort of moment of disruption is also a moment of tremendous opportunity. When you shake things up, uh, new doors open and things are available that they may not have been available before. 
Uh, right now is a tough moment. I mean, we can't kind of sugarcoat the health and economic devastation that we've all experienced, the emotional trauma that we go through by being so separated from our friends and our family at great distance, being stuck, uh, you know, sheltering in place and not being able to do the things that we want to do. But uh, that will end. And as it ends, you'll see a new disrupted world that's full of new opportunities uh, because society and life is different. So it's going to require different approaches, different businesses, different voices, different, uh, you know, energies in the world. And, you know, I just think that we should all be committed to pouring our energy into uh, trying to make the world a better place, adding value to society and to the world. I think if we do that, uh, we'll really get a lot back in return. You know, I direct the uh, MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, as right. you described earlier. And uh, when COVID hit, you know, I took our team and I said, listen, you know, we need to fight this thing head on. So we spun up four or five massive projects on uh, addressing and fighting the COVID pandemic. We've published uh, research with the World Health Organization and with Facebook about measuring the trajectory of the virus. And we're uh, surveying people around the world in, uh, in collaboration with Facebook and, um, and the World Health Organization trying to understand things like vaccine confidence and uh, how governors in the United States need to be coordinating with each other right. in order to really stop the pandemic. And so, you know, I think always find an opportunity to give back to society because that really enriches you and enriches the world, too. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm starting to see where your son gets that from, uh, for <laughs> sure. Uh, and that's going to wrap up this session of The Startup Life. We want to thank Sanan Aral uh, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, good sir. Really appreciate you. No worries. I do. I just wanted to uh, mention the three things, which is the website. Sure, absolutely. Uh, yes. the th yeah, the, the things you're going to link to, the, the, the website, the Twitter handle, the at Sinon Aral, okay. and then the at Professor Sinon on uh, Instagram. Gotcha. That would be really helpful. Oh, no, for sure. And Startup Nation, all those uh, three things are there in the show notes for easy access. And as always, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new startup blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.